0: Chapter twenty eight of the mystery of the hidden room. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The mystery of the hidden room by Marion Harvey. Chapter twenty eight Gold and Blue. Though I was impatient to interview Cunningham, it was almost eight thirty before we arrived at eighty fourth street, for on the way we had a blowout. And the garage attendant was the slowest specimen of his type that I had ever had the misfortune to encounter. Cunningham himself, debonair and genial as usual, admitted us into his apartment and invited us into what he designated as his smoking room. It was a medium-sized room furnished in good taste, and as I sank into the depths of a luxurious armchair and accepted the cigar he offered me, I felt assured that Cunningham would reasonably explain away the doubts which I had lately entertained toward him. Yes, the personality of the man, and the soothing influence of that rare cigar, had combined to make me as eager to hear him justify himself as before I had been anxious to prove him the murderer of his friend. But McKelvy was not so easily won over. He accepted a chair and a cigar, it is true, yet I knew well that he was waiting as a person does at chess for the next move of his adversary. "'It is very pleasant to have you gentlemen call upon me,' said Cunningham, breaking the silence. "'Have you come in a friendly or an antagonistic spirit, Mr. McKelvey?' "'I have come with an open mind,' responded McKelvey, quietly. "'Explain yourself, please.' cunningham leaned back and puffed leisurely at his cigar in an investigation of the sort that i am conducting one stumbles upon many queer things mckelvie paused to draw a long puff and to blow a series of rings toward the ceiling as these smoke rings cross and recross each other and finally merge together so do the trails in this case cross and recross each other until they all come together in the final solution to distinguish the truth from the myriad bypaths of coincidence and false testimony is quite an art i assure you for i do not believe in doing any man an injustice therefore i have come here tonight to give you a chance to explain certain curious facts which have come to my knowledge cunningham bowed I THANK YOU FOR THE CONSIDERATION, AND I SHALL DO MY BEST TO SATISFY YOU. McKELVIE LAID ASIDE HIS CIGAR. ARE YOU A LAWYER, MR. CUNNINGHAM? HE ASKED BLUNTLY. IF HE THOUGHT TO STARTLE THE MAN FACING US SO CALMLY, McKELVIE WAS MISTAKEN IN HIS ESTIMATE OF THE LAWYER'S CHARACTER. CUNNINGHAM REMOVED HIS CIGAR FROM HIS MOUTH, CONTEMPLATED ITS LIGHTED END FOR A MOMENT, and then replied simply, "'I am not registered in New York, if that is what you mean.' "'Then may I ask you by what right you constituted yourself Mr. Darwin's lawyer and acted as Mrs. Darwin's counsel at the inquest?' continued McKelvie imperturbably. Cunningham grinned sardonically. "'I fancy that my estimate of the police coincides with yours, Mr. McKelvey,' he said. "'They got the idea—from Orton, possibly—that I was Darwin's lawyer. They asked me to attend the inquest. I assumed the position they thrust upon me.' "'What would you?' he shrugged whimsically. "'It was no time to explain the complicated relation between us.' as far as mrs darwin is concerned i did not advise her in fact i did not even see her until she entered the study he paused and then leaned forward and said pointedly as he eyed mckelvie coolly you have asked me if i am a lawyer yes i am in this way i have studied law and was ready for my bar examinations when the death of an uncle in a foreign country left me wealthy i had to go abroad to secure my inheritance and when i returned i had no desire to restudy for those examinations so you see i am a lawyer without a sheepskin but nevertheless philip darwin had more confidence in my judgment than in that of the men who legalized his affairs i have given him legal advice yes as between friend and friend, because I was his confidant and he asked me for it. But I have never attempted to practice law in New York City or elsewhere. If you doubt my statement, you are at liberty to verify it.' "'I don't doubt you, Mr. Cunningham,' responded McKelvy quietly. "'I know you haven't practiced law. I was merely trying to get the connection between you and Darwin,' since you know so many of his affairs and represented him in a legal capacity when you went to chicago to see dick trenton a slight tremor of cunningham's eyelids was the only indication that the shot had told but he replied as coolly as ever not in a legal capacity he sent me because i was acquainted with the details of the affair and understood merely that I was to find out how much real proof the boy had. What Darwin called me in his telegram I do not know, since I did not see it." "'How do you know he sent a telegram?' queried McKelvey. "'Is this the third degree, Mr. McKelvey?' asked Cunningham, frowning. "'No, Mr. Cunningham, I know it sounds very much like it,' apologized McKelvie. "'But it isn't meant to be. You have shown a disposition to aid us before, and you will help me immensely by making certain matters clear. Will you answer a few more questions?' The frown cleared. "'Certainly. Glad to assist you. Fire away,' Cunningham returned indulgently. AND I DON'T MIND SAYING THAT DARWIN TOLD ME HE HAD SENT A TELEGRAM WHEN HE ASKED ME TO GO OUT TO CHICAGO FOR HIM. WHAT ADVICE DID YOU GIVE DARWIN WHEN YOU RETURNED FROM CHICAGO? I TOLD HIM THAT THE BOY HAD A STRONG CASE AND ADVISED HIM TO WRITE AND REQUEST DICK HIMSELF TO SEE MRS. DARWIN AND arrange FOR THE DIVORCE. WHETHER HE FOLLOWED MY ADVICE OR NOT, I DON'T KNOW. FOR YOUR INFORMATION, LET ME SAY THAT HE DID FOLLOW THAT ADVICE, THAT YOUNG TRENTON CAME TO NEW YORK AND, WITHOUT APPARENT CAUSE, COMMITTED SUICIDE. WHETHER THERE WAS AN INTERVIEW BETWEEN THEM OR NOT, I CANNOT OF COURSE SAY POSITIVELY, WAS MCKELVIE'S ASTONISHING REPLY. WHY WAS HE PERMITTING CUNNINGHAM TO REMAIN IN IGNORANCE OF OUR LATEST DISCOVERY CONCERNING RICHARD TRENTON? "'I'm very sorry to hear this,' murmured Cunningham. "'I should hate to think that my advice had brought him to such an end.' McKelvie changed the subject as abruptly as he had introduced it. "'You said you had charge of Darwin's securities. What made you keep them?' His eyes on the other man's face. "'He was a very peculiar man and hated responsibility.' i have cared for his securities and valuables for many years are you also caring for the one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that he drew from the bank and that is now reposing in your strong box cunningham looked annoyed and then laughed cynically nothing escapes you does it he sneered then in a different tone no that money is mine a year ago i loaned darwin enough to cover a slump in the market and thus saved him his fortune i told him i was in no hurry for it but as i've remarked more than once he was peculiar he came to me on the sixth and handed me the cash i asked him what i should do with all that money in that shape and told him i'd prefer a check he said that I'd given him cash, and he felt better returning it in kind, and so he left it. I was going to add it to my bank account, but I'm going on a trip shortly, and decided the cash would be useful to me. Therefore I put it in my strong box for keeping. "'Thank you very much. Sorry to have disturbed you,' said McKelvey, rising.' "'Answers satisfactory?' asked Cunningham, with a wry smile. "'Quite. "'And how much nearer to the solution have I carried you?' Cunningham continued, with great politeness. "'Unfortunately, I have remained static. Your answers, though satisfactory as far as you yourself are concerned, have not helped me a particle toward solving my problem.' "'I shall have to resort to desperate measures, I'm afraid,' responded McKelvie, smiling rather oddly. "'Desperate measures, eh? That sounds like business. Before you undertake this work, honor me by drinking to your ultimate success,' returned Cunningham. "'My man is away, so if you will pardon me a moment, I will get the whiskey and soda.' The moment Cunningham left the room, McKelvie, to my astonishment, sprang to the heavy portieres through which our host had passed, and looked out. Then he drew back, and walking swiftly to a door at the side of the room, he opened it and darted within. Wondering what he was up to, I rose and followed him to this doorway and looked into the room beyond. To my surprise, it was a bedroom extravagantly but exquisitely furnished in gold and blue. A woman's boudoir, but I had no time to fix the details in my mind, for at this moment McKelvie came toward me hurriedly from his search of the dressing-table. With a final comprehensive glance, and a whispered, "'I thought I heard his step in the hall,' McKelvey closed the door silently, while i retreated to my chair and sank into its comfortable depths none too soon with a clink of glasses cunningham entered through the portieres he glanced at us rather suspiciously i thought but mckelvie was contemplating the ceiling as he puffed his discarded cigar and i was deep in the pages of a book what book i have no idea Cunningham set the tray he carried on the table and poured out the whiskey, allowing us to help ourselves to the soda. Then we raised our glasses and drank to the toast Cunningham had proposed, though I noticed that McKelvey merely touched his glass to his lips and set it down untasted. "'I never drink whiskey,' he said quietly, as Cunningham raised his brows in interrogation is there anything else i can offer you no thank you i appreciate your efforts in my behalf good night mr cunningham and mckelvie bowed a trifle too deeply to be really sincere good night mr mckelvie responded cunningham returning the bow then he offered his hand to me good night he said again as we left what on earth were you doing in that bedroom i inquired as we parted at mckelvie's door by the way it was rather an odd room for a bachelor did you remark the golden blue rather a familiar combination eh here's the true significance of that very charming room holding up his hand he dangled before my eyes a tiny yellow satin sachet bag embroidered in blue a satin sachet whose fragrance was the fragrance of rose jacqueminot chapter twenty eight